I believe evil is a construct made up by religion. Nothing is really evil. I just think that's what it is. Evil is the weaker part of ourselves. Satan's all evil. Mm-hmm. 100%. You made that choice. I can't say there is a Satan. I can't say there's a God. Therefore, if there's not real evil, there can't be ultimate good either. This is what we make of it. Evil has begun from the beginning. Came Cain and Abel. I believe that there is a Lord of lies. He'll tell you that something that that is bad for you is good. I think evil is a part of what we are in society. It's more like everything has a balance, everything has opposition. It's an energy, you know, you can say it's a, it's a force. I think evil is relative, don't you? So is there a true definition of evil? Probably not. Evil is something that is in the head. It's within man, you know, it's temptation. Whether it actually exists, well, that's kind of like asking if any idea really exists. For me, evil is definitely tangible. Evil is not really a thing, it's more of an action. I think anything that's purposefully hurtful to someone else um, would be an evil action. On a worldly level, terrorism is a perfect example of that. I think the terrorists were evil. They believed what they were doing was right. What they did was not right, but at the same time, there is a certain amount of influence and ignorance involved in all sides. Osama bin Laden's just a crazy freak. He's not, he's not evil, he's just crazy. It could be chemical, you know, in their head sometimes. The chemical's not right, and so they do things. I think people being scared of what they don't know makes them do often evil things. Evil, non-evil, those are things that change from generation to generation, from century to century, mm-hmm. religion to religion. Evil is brainwashing, having people to follow and believe in what their causes are. I don't believe in killing or anything like that. I don't consider murder evil. I just choose not to call it evil, per se, because I think when you start saying evil, then people start getting all these preconceived notions about it. Child predators are evil to the core. Things like rape, I think that's evil. Anything can be dubbed as evil. Anything that makes you out of control is something that is evil. I just think some people are bad. But I wouldn't necessarily call it. And I think good people do bad things, and, and people who, who aren't as good do good things, too. So I know some people who try to get rid of darkness using a gray area. You have to use the light to combat the darkness. We do need more people like Mother Teresa. We need more people in this world to be understanding. And to get over evil is for everybody to break down their barriers. You gain a lot more by making right and confident choices versus evil choices. That would be one step towards diminishing the evil in our world. Trying to raise our children to be good people, regardless of our religious beliefs. And what we don't need are people that just look at one person and judge that one person. It's the fact that evil is made by judgment. Technically, it's only a thing of our mind that we have created, because what is, what is evil but what we've been told? It'd be easy, I think, to categorize, you know, people who have done really bad things as evil. That doesn't mean they're strictly evil, though. Hitler, Mussolini. Yeah, um, they've done horrible things, but who knows if they had some kind of psychological disorder that made it so they really weren't conscious enough to make good decisions. So how can we hold them accountable? Wow. Did you notice the one girl said... uh, Rape is evil, but murder is not. Wow. Why evil? Folks, for those interested, uh, Tim Keller has an excellent book called The Reason for God. And I'll be using that book some in this series. D.A. Carson, How Long, O Lord? How Long, O Lord? by D.A. Carson. And one that I'll be quoting from a good bit this morning, uh, Randy Alcorn, If God is Good. If God is Good. I'll leave these up here in case you want to take a look at them uh, before you leave today. But please don't take them. (laughs) Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Psalm 73, and I'll be reading this morning from the New Living Translation. Psalm 73. We'll be talking this morning on the subject matter, when life seems to collapse. When life 
seems to collapse. Truly God is good to Israel to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak. But God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert Him will perish. For you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. And I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. Father, speak to us through your word. Grant us understanding this morning according to your will. God, I pray for those in the church who are suffering. I pray for those who have experienced evil firsthand in their lives. That your presence would be very real to them as the psalmist here ended up saying about himself. That you were very close to him. And God we thank you that your ultimate plan in the gospel is to make all things new. We praise you for that in Jesus name. Amen. Let me say up front as I begin this series that I will certainly not be able to answer every question you have on this subject matter, why evil? And that's not even my purpose. My purpose is to give us some biblical answers that we can cling to. 
Now, folks, I can assure you right now as we speak, depending on what your kids are taking in college, this question right here is already being brought up in their university classroom. Too many in the world are like the psalmist here when he says, when I looked at all of the prosperity of the wicked and then viewed that up against my own pain and suffering, I almost lost my faith. Unbelievers use evil and suffering like a badge of courage. They think by throwing this issue out on the table, they are somehow or another forever silencing the God of the Bible. In a recent Barna Barna poll, People were asked, if you could stand before God and ask Him one question, what would that one question be? And the one question people settled on the most is they said they would ask God, why is there so much evil and pain and suffering in the world? Many think that scientific evidence is the cornerstone of atheism. I think of Great Britain's Anthony Flew. He was at one time their champion in that country of atheism. Well, he renounced his atheism because of all of the intelligent design that's in the universe. Now, we could wish that he would have embraced Christianity, biblical Christianity. He didn't. He embraced deism. Deism says God's like a clockmaker who created the universe. He wound it up and then he set the earth off in space and he walked away from it and has nothing to do with it anymore. Very disappointing that he came to that conclusion. But after reading Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion who believes the origin of life is just lucky chance, Flu said of atheists, if that's the best you've got as atheist, game over. You've lost. I also want to humbly say that if you think a little Southern Baptist pastor from Concord, North Carolina is going to solve this problem once and for all, that is foolishness. I'm not exaggerating when I say rivers of ink have been spilt on this topic. From the greatest philosophers and thinkers and theologians and historians all down through the ages. Rivers of ink. I think it's important to say up front that for now, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, we look through a glass dimly. But one day, we're going to see face to face. Amen? And our questions will be answered. Folks, just because we see dimly now and just because we don't understand everything now does not mean that Christians are left without answers. And please know also in this introductory message that I've got to throw out some terms and I've got to throw out some personalities that are used in this. You can't ignore that. Few of those things might seem academic and yet this is not going to be an academic series. But there's no way to avoid some of the terminology that's used. Some of the answers that I will give you will also be very predictable. You would expect it in church. But just because it's predictable doesn't mean it's bad. We predict that the sun's going to come up in the morning. Is that bad? No. There's some bedrock principles that are going to govern me through this topical series 
And folks, as we go through this series, I don't think we have to compromise a single one of these foundational points. Let me give you a few of them. And as we go along, I want you to keep these in mind and we may add a few to them all along as we go along. But you may want to write these down. A a first foundational principle that's going to guide me as I go through this is the fact that God is good. The Bible says that God is love. That's one of his attributes that defines who God is. He is a good God and he makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He is a kind, a good, and a benevolent sovereign. A second principle, he created a good universe. You read Genesis 1 and after each day of creation, what's the phrase that you find over and over again? God saw what he had made that day and what did he say? It was good. And finally, he said, as he looked at all of it, it is very good. A third foundational principle, God cares. Exodus 3, 7, God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. A fourth principle, God is all-knowing. Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, the Bible says, All of the days of your life have been written down. All of your days are numbered before you live even one of them. Think about that. What do we say sometimes? He died too soon. And we might think that way from our perspective, but from God's perspective, when did he die? He died right on time. Jesus even said, all the hairs on your head are numbered. So God's all-knowing. Yet another foundational principle, God is all-present. Again, Psalm 139, there's nowhere you can go. Nowhere that you could get away from God. Still another principle, God is all-powerful. Nothing is impossible for you, O Lord, the Bible says. Read Isaiah 40 sometimes about everything that God has done displaying His omnipotence. Another principle, God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6 says. The Bible even says that God is too pure to even look on sin. Another principle. God allows sin and evil without being the direct author of it. Look up on the screen, I'm going to have them put there the third chapter of the Westminster Confession and what it says. Now folks, let me say something about the Westminster Confession. Just about all modern day doctrinal statements by different denominations and churches are traced back to the Westminster Confession, including our Baptist doctrinal statements. In the second, the, the second London Baptist Confession, the Philadelphia Confession, once the settlers came here, and then all back since have pretty much relied in some sense on the Westminster Confession. And, and listen to what it says, and I quote here, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. 
Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So God allows sin and evil without being the author of sin and evil. Another principle, why does God allow evil? The ultimate and final answer to that is for His glory. If you question that, just read John 9 sometime. The discussion of the man born blind and the religious leader said to Jesus, Did this man sin? No. Is he blind because he sinned? No. Is he blind because his parents sinned? No. And they said, Why? Why is he blind? Why has this evil happened to him? Why is he experiencing this suffering? And you remember what Jesus said? This is for God's glory. Still another foundational point I'll operate in under this, uh, in this series is that evil exists. Folks, we're not Christian scientists. Now, by the way, to quote John MacArthur on this, Christian science is kind of like grape nuts. <laughs> grape nuts are neither grapes nor nuts. Christian scientists, it's neither Christian nor science. But the Christian scientist says, there's no pain or suffering or sickness or evil in the world. There's not even any death. All of these things are just illusions. Just illusions. They finally had to acknowledge that their leader had died. The irrationality of this worldview is illustrated by the little boy who visited his family's Christian science practitioner to ask the practitioner to pray for his sick father. And the practitioner replies, Son, your father only thinks he's sick. Tell him to have faith and, and believe that he's not sick, but he's well. Well, the boy did so. The practitioner sees him the next day and says, How's your father? And the little boy says, Well, now he thinks he's dead. <laughs> Folks, we must not deny evil and suffering and pain and death. Not only is that not biblical, it's not even a good answer by anybody's standard to just deny it. Robert Browning said in one of his poems, God is in his heaven and all is right with the world. Well, God is in his heaven, but everything is not right with the world. And the Bible even says everything's not right with the world. One more foundational principle, and then we'll move on. Many matters we will simply have to leave in the hands of God. And that's not a cop-out. We are finite. God is infinite. If man had all the answers, then somewhere in the last four to 5,000 years of debating this issue, I think the issue would have been solved. In the closing chapters of Job, the book of Job, by the way, through this series, read the book of Job. God gets pretty blunt with Job. Job... Sit up straight and speak up and answer me. Since you're so smart and you know everything and now you're the standard by which the universe is governed, answer me. God gets pretty blunt and sarcastic with him. 
And then God goes off on some questions to leave Job speechless. In the end, God says, Job, I was there when, when I laid the foundations of the earth. Were you? Of course not. I was there when I hung all the stars in their courses. I did it. Were you there? No. I was there when I created all of the great beasts of the field and all of the great sea creatures. I did all of that. I'm God and you're not. So would you please just shut up? That's my translation, obviously. How did Job end? Job ended the book by saying, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I have been a fool. God basically said, that's the first thing that you've said right. So we'll have to leave some matters to God. Well, so much for an introduction. Let's get started. First of all, this morning, if you're taking notes, the first point, defining the issue. This issue, here's one of those words, this issue has been referred to as theodicy. Theodicy. Theodicy is the term used to attempt to answer the question of why a good God permits the manifestation of evil, thus trying to resolve the issue of the problem of evil. Now some theodicies also address the supposed problem of an all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving God being consistent with the reality of evil in the world. Theodicy is taken from two Greek words, theos, God, and, and dike, trial, or judgment. And so theodicy refers to justifying God. And one of the earliest personalities in this was the Greek philosopher Epicurus. As he stated, the, the logical argument from, from evil is as follows. You can read it there. If an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omniscient God exists, then evil does not. There's evil in the world. And so thirdly, therefore, an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omniscient God does not exist. That's the answer today of skeptics and atheists. Others have used a triangle to state the problem. On one point of the triangle, God is all loving. On a second point, God is all powerful. On a third point, evil exists. And what they will say is any two points of that triangle seem to be able to coexist. But the problem is getting all three of them to coexist. They'll say that, that maybe God is all loving but he's not powerful and so he can't do anything about the evil. Or maybe he's all powerful but he's not all loving. He just doesn't care and so evil exists. Well what I'm going to be showing you is how I believe the Bible shows us why all three points can coexist. I think the Bible gives us answers better than any other worldview out there. You see, for far too long, Christians think when faced with this problem of evil and suffering, it's kind of like a football game. They're on their 10-yard line, and it's, they've kept being pushed back. It's 4th and 40, and they're on their own 10. And so all they can hope to do is just punt and hope, hope it turns out well. But folks, again, I think the Bible gives the best answers. And let me also say that the atheist or skeptic doesn't even have to answer this question. They simply point out, to them that God doesn't exist. And so it's the believer who has to try to give credible answers. The problem for the atheist is the opposite problem. They have to answer the question, why is there good out there in the world? 
Folks, how we deal with this subject matter is going to radically affect how we see God and the world around us. We may want to turn away from suffering. We may want to refuse to reflect on the significance of our suffering and pain. We just may want it all to go away. But as Christians, we need to grapple with it. Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 says, We need to be ready to give a defense of our faith to anybody who asks us. And again, I can promise you, for young people today, this whole issue right here is the issue they're going to be hammered with. A good reason to arrive at a good theology of evil and suffering is because sooner or later, if we live long enough, each of us is going to experience it. We're going to go through pain and suffering and evil and death and all these things. And if your faith is not well grounded, it's going to be shaken. As one pastor's daughter said, I was never taught that the Christian life sometimes would be hard. And so when I got older and went away to the university and it got hard, my faith was shaken. Listen to one testimony given in one of these books on this topic here. He said, when I was admitted to the hospital in sepsis with a 50-50 chance of survival, I asked the chaplain how we could believe that God is love when this felt like the antithesis of love. I said I wouldn't inflict this much suffering or pain on somebody I hated, let alone somebody I loved. She told me she'd look it up. And she left my room, and I never heard from her since. I posed the same question to the social worker who came to see me a few days later. She told me that God is like a giant, and we're like little ants. And sometimes he accidentally steps on our ant heels, and some of us get hurt. She said, Our suffering is random, and God is probably not even aware of it. Wow. Pitiful answers. Folks, we can do better than that. Secondly, we all bring something of our own experience to this subject. If abuse or rape or disease or the death of a loved one or a financial calamity or anything like that has ever touched your life, then this issue isn't simply theoretical or philosophical. It's deeply real. It's deeply personal. The problem of evil and suffering can quickly in a flash go from the philosophical to the reality in your life in an instant. Philosopher Professor Peter von Inwagen wrote, Angels may weep because the world is filled with suffering. A human being weeps because his daughter, she and not another, has died of leukemia this very night. Or because her village, the only world she knows, is burning and the mutilated bodies of her husband and her son lie at her feet. Three weeks after his 33-year-old son Christopher died in a car wreck in the Los Angeles area, Greg Laurie addressed a crowd of 29,000 at Angel Stadium in Anaheim, California and said, I've talked about heaven my whole life and I've given countless messages on life after death. I've counseled many people who've lost a loved one and I thought I knew a little bit about it. But I have to say that when it happens to you, it's a whole new world. Folks, pain is local. It has an address 
it has a zip code and it has a name on it. And Christians aren't exempt. Some Christians believe if they serve God enough or they love God enough, they're going to earn some kind of special status enough with them that they're going to be exempt from all this. They're not going to suffer. That is simply not true. Robert Rogers' family, his entire family, mind you, drowned in the 2003 Kansas flash flood. This Christ-centered family, they went to church, they tithed, they read the Bible, they prayed together. They all died in the flood. Again, what do we see in Psalm 73? I read a moment ago. It may seem at times even that believers suffer more than unbelievers. And folks, for the most part, we're, we're kind of insulated from a lot of this around the world. I mean, to some degree. Still happens, don't get me wrong, on a micro level. But let's not forget in Sudan, millions including children have been murdered, raped, and enslaved. The 2004 Asian tsunami killed more than 280,000 people. And recently, look at what's happened in the Bahamas. Around the world, almost 27,000 children, little children, die Every single day. 9-11 obviously was horrific. But the death toll in the 1994 Rwandan genocide amounted to more than two World Trade Center disasters every single day for a hundred days straight. As Alcorn says in his book, if we'll just open our eyes and pay attention, we'll get a glimpse of evil and suffering all over the world. He said he had to, there was a day that came, he had to go and visit his mother and, and tell his mother, tell his mother that her own brother had been murdered with a meat cleaver. A Christian woman tipped over her riding lawnmower at the edge of the lake, fell in, the big mower on top of her. She couldn't get free. She drowned. Bizarre things happen and we ask why. C.S. Lewis, you've read about C.S. Lewis, right? One of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time. C.S. Lewis said after his wife died, if I had really cared as I thought I did, if I really cared about the sorrows of the world, I should not have been so overwhelmed when my own sorrows came. Folks, we need God's truth. Amen? We need God's truth to help us interpret life. And when we turn to God's truth, the Bible, we see that the Bible never diminishes the presence of sin and suffering and evil in our lives. It doesn't gloss it over one bit. The faith that can't be shaken is the faith that in some sense has been shaken. Here's what I mean by that. 1 Peter and James, James 1 and 1 Peter both talk about trials coming into our lives that if we respond correctly when those trials shake us, how do we emerge on the other side? We emerge stronger than ever before. So in that sense we can say the faith that can't be shaken probably already has been shaken. And when we're going through times like this, the greatest gift of all is that God gives himself. Johnny Erickson Totter said that that's the greatest lesson she's learned in her life. 
young person, died in a diving, uh, paralyzed in a diving accident. You know all about her, paralyzed, quadriplegic, neck down. And she looks back on that experience in her life and how through that, through that suffering and her paralysis, she has learned more than ever about the gift of God in her life. God, like a father, doesn't just give advice. He gives himself. He becomes the husband to the grieving widow, Isaiah 54. He becomes the comforter to the barren woman, again, Isaiah 54. He becomes the father of the orphaned, Psalm 10. He becomes the bridegroom to the single person, Isaiah 62. He's the healer of the sick, Exodus 15. He's the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace to the confused and the depressed, Isaiah 9. Third thing I want you to see with me this morning. The problem of evil seen from various worldviews. Now again, folks, this this message here would just set the table. Next week we're going to start addressing some specific things. But different worldviews. One worldview is that there's no suffering and no evil. I've already alluded to that. Some pantheistic religions, often related to Hinduism, essentially deny the existence of suffering and evil. Again, it's just an illusion. Pantheists believe that everything's God. God is nature. Nature is God. The things we call evil are only imperfections in our view of reality that progressive self-realization and self-improvement can remove. Some worldviews are like this, including Christian scientists I mentioned a moment ago. It's just an illusion. It doesn't exist. Second worldview. One view says there is no God. You've got people like David Hume and Bertrand Russell in the past who offered this solution. Atheist Andrea Weisberger concludes in her book on this, none can account for the tremendous amount of suffering in the world in which an allegedly omnipotent, omniscient, and holy good God reigns. The conclusion to which we are drawn, therefore, is that the existence of such a God is implausible. That's the atheist. A third view says God's got limited goodness. Second century Gnostics thought the world's evil proceeded from God's own being. Richard Dawkins, the God delusion, says it's as easy to imagine an evil God as a good God. In fact, he considers the God of the Old Testament an evil God. Limited goodness. That's their answer. A fourth worldview sees God as having limited power. If more than one God exists, then divine power is divided, doesn't reside in a single God. Hence you have polytheism. No God is all-powerful. Zoroastrianism teaches this, teaches a dualism. It sees the universe as a cosmic battle between Two sovereign beings, one good and one evil. And the good one does the best that he can and you've got to love him because he tries to do the best that he can. But the scoundrel evil one undoes much of what the good one tries to do. Now folks, there's only one sovereign. When you think of the word sovereign God by definition there can only be one of those there can only be one God unfortunately some Christians believe Satan has so much power that not even God can do anything about it at least for now and so a lot of Christians today you go talking to them and they affirm a dualism without even realizing it They're they're saying Satan, at least for now, must have just as much power as God. 
I suppose you could place process theology in this category of God having limited power. Have you heard of process theology? It's big in some people's minds. Process theology says God is always growing. He's always evolving. He grows with the universe. Poor God. He's developing. Just give him a little more time and he'll be a better God. He's better today than he was a thousand years ago. And he'll be better 10 or 20 years from now than he is today. He's growing. Just give him time. Be patient with God. What's the Bible say in response to that? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God says, I change not. The Bible says, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A fifth view sees God as having limited knowledge. In the last 30 or 40 years or so, it started big time again in about 1994, 1996. Some Christians called open theists. You've read about open theists, right? They've denied that God has moral responsibility for the bad things that happen because he just simply doesn't know that they're going to happen. God doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow any better than you do. If God could have known those terrorists were going to get in those airplanes and fly them into those buildings... He might could have done something. But he was as surprised and shocked as you were when he was sitting there watching it. Again, he doesn't know tomorrow any better than you do. If, If he did know, he'd stop it. Open theists believe that that God's love overshadows everything else, but they believe that human free will has sufficient power to thwart God's loving plan. Clark Pinnock, one of these uh, open theists, says, Decisions not yet made do not exist anywhere to be known even by God. Wow. Wow. What do you even say to such foolishness like that? Folks, open theism is an attack on the omniscience of God and therefore on the sovereignty of God. One more worldview and I'm done before we conclude. The proper one. God is all good, all powerful, and all knowing. He hates evil and will ultimately judge evildoers and remove evil and suffering after accomplishing a greater eternal good. Folks, the Bible confirms evil's existence and considers all of God's attributes as infinite. Johnny Erickson Totter writes, God permits what he hates to accomplish that which he loves. Evil is never good, yet God can use any evil to accomplish his good and sovereign purposes. Through the redemptive suffering of Christ in which he took all human evils on himself and through his triumph over evil and death, God has done everything necessary to defeat evil. One day God's going to carry out his redemptive plan. He's going to swallow up death forever, Isaiah 25 says. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Let me wrap up with a few more things. People sometimes try to come up with all sorts of things to get God off the hook, so to speak, for evil and suffering in the world. That's why you have things like open theism and process theologian. We got to do something. We got to come up with something to get God off the hook. Can I tell you this morning, God is, God is happy to be on the hook. 
He's willing to be able to own this problem. Because I want you to think about something. What is the greatest evil that has ever been done in human history? Greatest evil. What is it? Say it again. The cross. Without a doubt, it would have to be the cross. Think about it. When the very Son of God, the sinless Son of God, the Lord and Savior, when wicked men hung Him on the cross and He died. Who did that? Did the Romans do that? Yes. Did the Jews do that? Yes. But ultimately, God did it. Ultimately, God did it. The Bible says that. Calvary was God's will. The greatest evil ever done in human history. God put His Son on the cross. God's not the author of sin and evil. But God allowed it. And He used the wicked schemes, the evil wicked schemes of men to accomplish His will. Think about it. God has to allow it. If God is sovereign, then you ultimately have to say that God allowed it. Otherwise, you end up with a God who is powerless and He's certainly not sovereign. The sovereignty of God says that God even allows evil and uses it. Think again about the book of Job. Satan could only do what he did to Job on God's permission. God allowed him. But remember what God did? God allowed it, but God also limited. God said to Satan, you can do that, but you can't take his life. Satan used wicked men. He used those, tri- those marauding bands of people who came in, violent men who came in and killed some of Job's children. God allowed Satan to do that. Satan used those men. Satan used the forces of nature The children that were still surviving, God allowed the storm. He allowed Satan to use a natural calamity, a natural disaster to bring others to death in in Job's family when the house collapsed on them and killed them. And then Satan was allowed by God to inflict Job with those painful boils and sickness. All of that was at God's discretion and God's allowance. You don't have to get God off the hook. God is big enough to handle it. I'm going to say more on that in a moment. It's like the flood when all of mankind, with the exception of Noah and Noah's family, when all of mankind was wiped out along with all of those animals, who did that? Who brought the massive rains and the flood? Who did that? God did. It was his his righteous judgment. Massive suffering and death. It It was the judgment of God. Every attempt to get God off the hook compromises his sovereignty in some way. Paul even says in Romans chapter 8 that God is the one who subjected creation to the fall. Who subjected the creation to the fall? Satan? No. Paul says God is the one who subjected it. God subjected the creation to corruption brought on by the fall. Again, God is happy to be on the hook. He's sovereign. As some have said, for God to display his full range of attributes, there's got to be evil and suffering. We wouldn't know God's mercy 
without our need of it. We wouldn't know God's forgiveness without our sin. We wouldn't know God's goodness apart from evil in the world. Folks, just because we don't understand everything about the purposes of God does not mean that there's not a purpose. Also, the biggest thing of all to keep in mind, people say, if God is really there, why doesn't he do something about it? Are you kidding me? He has and he will. Folks, that's what the entire biblical narrative is all about. God is redeeming a fallen world and a fallen humanity. That's what the whole biblical narrative is about. The redemptive plan of God that one day eventually is going to be absolute complete. What those people are really saying is, why doesn't God do something? What they're really saying is, why doesn't God do something now on my timetable? Folks, that's arrogant to think that God is supposed to fix everything right now on your timetable. Who do people like this think they are? Does God answer to us? As Paul says at the end of Romans 11, no one at any time has ever been God's counselor or given God advice on anything. The redemptive story. We come all through the Old Testament, get to the New Testament, Christ dying for sins. We get to the end of the Bible where the Bible tells us he's making all things new. The whole place, everything, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There'll be no sin, there'll be no Satan, there'll be no death, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no suffering or sorrow of any kind because God's making all things new. God is is doing something about it. What more could he do than that when you think about him making all things new? Let me ask you to bow in prayer with me a moment. And as you do so, I want to ask you to spend a few moments this morning Thinking about the goodness and the mercy of God. Just right now, every head bowed, every eye closed. Think about the goodness and the mercy of God. And how you see that in your own life. Are you going through suffering right now? Are you going through trials? In this series, we're going to look at that. We're going, to, we're going to look at God's purposes in that. God has a purpose in your suffering, in your trial. You can trust Him. Don't run away from Him because of that trial. Run to Him. Perhaps you need to come to Him today in repentance and faith. Some need to ask God to help them trust Him in all things, even things that they can't understand. I would say, especially in things you can't understand, trust Him. It is extremely likely, talking to this congregation this morning, with this many people here, it is extremely likely that you know somebody who's turned away from God because of pain and suffering in their own life or because of this problem of evil. Pray for them. Take notes through this series. Pray that God would give you an understanding of how you could better sit down and talk with them. 
It may be a slow process. It may be a long haul. I pray that you'll be willing to do that. Father, we thank you that this world is not out of control. You are sovereign and you have a plan and a purpose even in the evil that is done. You're not the author of it. James 1 says when we're tempted to sin, we can't say God did that in my life. You're not tempted by evil and James says you don't tempt anybody with evil. But God, you Use even uh, evil. You use the evil of men. You use the evil of Satan. I'm sure when Jesus died on that cross, Satan and the demonic powers had a party. They thought they'd won. And little did they realize... You use the devil's sword to cut the devil's head off ultimately. Your ways are beyond our ways. Lord, help us to trust you. I pray for that one right now who needs to come to faith in Christ. Lord, help them to see that the God of the Bible is a God that can be fully trusted. Fully trusted. There is no shortcoming with you. There is no lack of sufficiency in you. And may they learn that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.